You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a senior editorial manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. What keeps you up at night? It's a question that inevitably prompts a long list of answers from cybersecurity leaders, especially those securing critical infrastructure that powers our way of life. Driving transformational change across connected OT and IT systems while facing a slew of constant cyber threats and increased regulatory scrutiny can be a sleepless job, one that consumes power 24-7. Which is why today's guest, Carla Donov, is no stranger to sleepless nights and round-the-clock calls. As Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at NYSource, Donov leads security operations for one of the largest U.S. utilities, which delivers gas and electricity to millions of citizens across six states. She's got a lot on her plate and a lot on her mind, but she stopped by to share firsthand insights on how building safer, more resilient operations is key to preserving trust. We get to that and corporate cafeteria food and what keeps her up at night, of course, in today's episode of Trust Issues. It was great to speak with her. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you for joining us, Carla. Thanks for having me. One of the things we like to do before we uh, get going and start asking the questions is for you to just maybe give us a little bit of a quick elevator pitch about what you do in your role at NYSource. Yeah, so NYSource is a natural gas and electric organization, so we are part of critical infrastructure. So that has been an interesting space to be in lately. My role here is truly the true cyber function. We have everything cyber-related from IT and the OT perspective. I also uh, do some work in the IT compliance, IT risk management. I own security architecture now as well along with security awareness. And recently, I just inherited the IT infrastructure organization as well. So I I have a little bit of everything across the IT function. And so adding that infrastructure piece to it, what does that mean? What we decided is there's a lot of consistency between the infrastructure components and the security. And those two teams worked so closely together that it just made sense to bring them together under one leader. And so, for example, my cyber team has vulnerability management, but the infrastructure team does the patching. They work hand in hand. So now they're kind of working a little closer together under one organization. So it's been a good fit up until this point in time. So what does a typical day look like for you? What are you involved with? I love my job because no day is ever the same. They are very different depending on what is happening in the world. And Being part of a utility, especially right now um, with the situations going on in Russia, Ukraine, and just everything else happening in the world with ransomware and denial of service that we're starting or seeing everywhere. My day is always up and down. Usually, you know, we have our team meetings. We always have a team huddle in the morning and then we kick off throughout the day and Some days it's whatever comes at us is what you do. I always tell my team I'm more of their PR person. I'm not hands-on keyboard, but I'm here to help you. So it's a lot of calls during the day, a lot of emails, a lot of texts. Hey, need your help with this, need your help with that. So say that I do a lot of the firefighting amongst everyone and putting out those fires is kind of my job. And some days it's harder than others. You know, we are 
a natural gas company. And so there's been a lot of emphasis on us since uh, the Colonial Pipeline. And so it's been trips to D.C. to talk about that with folks. Um, And it's a lot of internal conversations, just getting ourselves to a point where we feel like we're prepared. I want to circle back to Colonial Pipeline in a few minutes, but I first wanted to ask you, you've been with NYSource now for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, how has the cyber IT landscape changed in, in your view since you joined in, in January 2018? And how has your role evolved in that time? Yeah, it's changed a lot here since when I joined. When I joined, security at NYSource was completely outsourced. Uh, it was a very small team of just a handful of people. And They communicated daily with our offshore folks and what we were maintaining. And I wasn't very comfortable with that. I I thought it was kind of strange to feel I'm secure by getting a report every week. And so we've worked really hard the past four years. We've brought everything back in-house. We have all of our own tool sets in place, a full team that manages 24-7, but it also has its challenges. So As we've grown, the cyber landscape has changed as well with just the global impact and technologies everywhere. And, you know, we have now meters sitting at your home that communicate back to us and things like that. And so we've just had to kind of adapt as we go along to what is out there, what do we need in place to, I would say, be on watch and be able to react if we need. And a lot of times, the team will come to us and say, oh, you know, we've seen this and now we need this technology. And so I would say from our perspective, it has been just trying to keep up it has been our biggest challenge over the past couple of years. But it's been a fun journey. So you mentioned the smart meters um, mm-hmm. and, you know, that brings up the topic of, of IoT. Mm-hmm. Um, how does IoT figure into what you're focused on now? And what about it makes you nervous? And what about it makes <laughs> you feel like there's nothing but a, a opportunity there? I feel like you sat in one of my meetings uh, earlier in the week. Um, you know, we live in an IoT world. Maybe and I did. <laughs> maybe you were. But, uh, you know, we live in an IoT world here. We have trucks out in the field every day that communicate back to us. I say that all the time that those are just moving IoT devices. Uh, they're just mobile And so we have that. We now have in Indiana, we have solar farms and wind farms, and there are sensors all over those that are the IoT devices. And now with the smart meters, uh, you know, you have a lot of interesting perspectives on that. You know, you have the homeowners who don't want it because they feel as if you're the new Alexa, you know, listening into their environment which is definitely not true. It literally just sends data back to us and that's all. Um, And I think that we've had to do a lot of research and figure out how do we work in that space? And even from the network, how do we even connect to these? You know, there's thousands of them out there. And so how do we do it? And how do we do it in an effective way? And so we've had a lot of conversations with our peers who are already doing that. Uh, We're actually kind of, a little behind in catching up with some of our peers in that space who have been doing that for a while. But we've learned a lot from them. They've been able to share, hey, this is the technologies we use. These are the lessons learned that we have. These are the things you should definitely not do and consider. And uh, so I would say that we are in a decent place right now with IoT. You know, we can always get better. You're never going to be 100%. But I think that we are heading in the right direction. And especially I view that our industry is getting more into technology in the field. And it is just going to be a matter of time before 
you know, that's all we have. People tell me all the time, oh, it's, we don't need a field person. You're going to have a drone or a robot that does it. And I laugh most of the time, but it's like, yeah, it's probably is coming in the future. How much of what you do on a day-to-day basis or how much of what you're thinking about on a day-to-day basis involves embracing something futuristic and having to either, you know, poke a hole in it or say, okay, let's figure out a way to make this work in the long run. Yeah, the view of a cyber person is always to say no. (laughs) No, you're not going to do that. No, we don't want that here. Um, But I've always told my teams, no matter where I've been, that we have to find the yes and the no. They're going to do it even if we say no. So we have to find a way to compromise with them in that. And so we've been able to do that so far. Um, we, we have drones. Uh, we have electric you know, power lines in Indiana. And sometimes the only way to be able to get into those rural areas and see above and see what's happening is with drones. So that's a space that we definitely are in. I would also say that we have to think about what the future of the industry is. And that's something that we've been talking about. You hear about the sustainability and the renewables, and we are getting into that space in Indiana in electric. You know, we have a commitment to shutting down our coal plants and moving to all renewables. That's a completely different technology environment than what we had. And, you know, on the gas side, you hear about renewable natural gas and what that is and what's that, what are we going to need to do with that? And we're not there yet on the gas side, but we're starting to research that. And a lot of things with that is technology. And, you know, I have my team telling me, why do I need to look into renewable gas? We're not doing it. Well, I think we have to be prepared for it. And so those are some of the things that I think about is where's the future of the industry going? And it's moving to renewables. It's moving to making things easier, more effective for our users. I mean, people want to pull up your app on their phone and see what is our usage? What does it look like? You know, so we have to think about those things. And we're thinking about that from an app perspective as well, is what do we want our customers to be able to do in the app? How do we interact with them? That's where the AMI devices come in, Um, you know, the smart meters. Do we have to send somebody out to your house now to check your meter, to read your meter, to shut off your gas or turn it back on? We can do that remotely. And so those are things that are highly (laughs) ingrained with technology. And it's scary. It's scary to think, oh, wow, somebody here can turn off your gas at your house. But it's something that we do. And we know that we're setting it up in a way that's safe for everyone. Great. Thank you. So when you're talking about peers, are you talking about peers in your industry or peers just anywhere? And where are you taking cues from as far as Uh, user experience goes. And I guess this is a long way of asking just what other industries are you looking at? And then what kind of security challenges does that pose when you incorporate them into what you're doing? For us, you know, the utility industry is probably one of the most collaborative I've ever been in. I've been in healthcare, I've been in retail, and those are businesses where you don't talk to your peers, you don't share information with them. In the utilities, I mean, I talk to one of my peers daily, usually. It's a lot of open communication, data sharing, and this is what we're doing, this is what we're seeing. And so it is a very different environment. And I think we do learn a lot from that. But you also realize that you can't just rely on that industry. You know, there's other industries that are way further ahead than we are. We rely a lot on information that comes from banking. Banking is one of the most advanced when it comes to cyber. And so we, we think about that. And here in Columbus, Ohio, there's some uh, pretty large banks. And I have some old team members that work at some of those banks. And so I'm able to call them and say, what do you do with this? What do you do with that? And uh, pull a lot of the information from them. And I pull a lot from my history in retail as well. And what we used to do, specifically when you talk about mobile apps, I mean, they've had them forever. And you know now the utilities are finally starting to get there. So when I think about our mobile app, I think, well, you know, 
we did this back here. So here's what we need to think about from a security perspective. And so I would say that it's good to have that open mind. Um, the utilities are usually a little behind uh, when it comes to technology. So I would say for us, it's banking. Banking is what we look at pretty heavily. Um, but we're open to engaging with anyone else. That's really interesting. So when you're hiring for your team, are you looking for that kind of background for folks who have been in other industries so they can bring that knowledge into your industry? Absolutely. I, I think that is critical. Um, it's always good to have people on your team who understand your industry and know all the ins and the outs. But I also believe that it's beneficial to have folks from different industries. They have different experiences. They've seen things a little differently. And so I have no a rule that says you have to be from the utilities for me to hire you. Uh, you know, we hire a lot from the military. We've got a lot of fantastic people who have come from the military backgrounds, and um, they are fantastic cyber folks. They're trained heavily, um, and they they are dedicated. And so we hire a lot of military. And I mean, we've gotten people from retail. We've gotten people from banks. We have consultants, and everyone brings their own skill set. And I'm more of a hire of who you are as a person. I never hire people based on their skills or where they came from. To me, it's, can you be a good team member? Can you be somebody who represents our team well? Can you work well with others and get the job done? Uh, you know, I can teach you the skills. You know, I always tell people, I could teach you how to set up an, a network, but I can't teach you how to be a good team member. So for me, that's kind of the stuff that I look at. I let my team dive into, are they technically capable but for me, it's just making sure that they're the right person for the, for the job. And and it brings up something that you had mentioned um, prior to prior to this conversation in our pre-interview about um, about your own degree. Uh, what, what what was that again? <laughs> um, I actually have an accounting degree. Um, I have no computer science, none none of that, and that's what I I always tell folks. I told my boss not too long ago. I am a fantastic person when it comes to balancing my budget. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, but, you know, I found my way into technology. I just didn't want to reconcile accounts anymore. It wasn't something that was for me. So I found my way into, um, you know, a consulting job that was technology-based and learned a lot from that and got into IT audit over time. And before you know it, um, I'm in a security role. And I initially said no. When they offered me, you know, the interview, I said, absolutely not. I am not a security person. I'm not an IT person. I'm, I'm definitely not doing that. And I went home, thought about it for a while and said, well, why not? Why not try something different? Who knows? And, you know, that was probably over 10 years ago. And here I am, you know, and in this role, you know, managing, you know, the security operations for, you know, uh, uh, one of the largest utilities in the country. So it's it's been fun. And and do do folks around the office uh, hit you up around tax time for for <laughs> tips and questions and stuff like that? Tips and tricks, I guess they like to call uh, it. No, I openly tell them that I don't even do my own taxes, so uh, I'm not that person. <laughs> so you mentioned Colonial Pipeline, the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack from 2021. You mentioned that a few minutes ago. In the wake of that attack, mm -hmm. how are you looking at pipeline security now? What's changed since then? There's been a lot of change since then, and it's been kind of eye-opening for the industry. I think when that happened, it really kind of opened the eyes to, wow, there isn't much from a requirements perspective on the pipelines, and Colonial really showed that. And I don't know if many people aren't aware that TSA actually is the regulator for the pipeline industry. 
the same TSA that's in your airport is regulating our pipelines, which when I first heard that, I'm like, it can't be, it can't be, it's got to be a different TSA. And then it's like, no, it is, it's the same folks. And so uh, I think it was one of those, they realized that they needed to get ahead of it and they needed to start, you know, get putting some ground rules around what needs to be done with the pipeline industry. And, um, you know, we have, you know, with an electric NERC SIP and those guidelines have been around forever and we comply with that. And there's, it's very strict around what you can and cannot do from a cyber perspective within that organization. And so, oh, the last year now it's, TSA is trying to get us to that point of what does that environment look like in the future? What will that regulation be? They've released security directives that have been, here's your requirements now. Here's what you must do. They released those to the top 100 pipelines in the country. We were fortunate enough to be one of those. Um, and so you start thinking about it a little differently. We've always had controls in that space but not as strict and granular to the level that we realized we needed. So we focused on that the past year and started to really harden and, and think about that environment completely different. And it's been, uh, it's been fun. It's been fun dealing with the OT stuff. You don't get to see that every day and think about, wow, this system actually sitting here controls the gas to six different states and how it does it. And you think about you know, the cyber around that and the implications of it. And it's very eye-opening. And you know, I thought about that a couple of years ago when I first started here, we had the Merrimack Valley incident in Massachusetts, um, an unfortunate incident there. But that night, you know, I'm sitting in my office and the first questions people ask me, is this a cyber event? You know, did somebody get control of the gas? And you initially say, well, let me find out. And then you sit in your office and you start questioning yourself on, oh no, is this the right thing? Is it not? And, you know, I, I jokingly told someone the other day, I'm like, you know, it's so funny that that night I had Department of Energy, DHS and uh, the FBI all call me on my phone. Didn't know they had my number, but they found it, you know, and hmm. in the end of, end of the night, we realize it's not a cyber incident and you feel a sigh of relief, but then you think about it. And I was like, wow, you know, it could have been. I started really thinking about my job a lot different after that and the implications of it. It really changed my mindset that, well, people can lose their life if I don't do my job right. And it's very a different, different feeling after that. And I think I have taken my job very differently from that. And I think it's only going to get more involved, involvement from the government. They are focusing on cyber. They're focusing on how do we secure the critical infrastructure. You know, with the Russia-Ukraine situation, it's coming up even more now with you know, Russian is a powerhouse in, in that and they have the ability to bring down critical infrastructure. They've done it in other countries. And so how do we focus on it here has been just part of the extension of, you know, the colonial pipeline and now this. And it's been a real focus for us. And we've been able to really advance our cyber program. It's kind of exciting. I would think that with the war in Ukraine and and obviously now that we're post-colonial pipeline, um, how do you stop thinking about your job? Is it possible to do? I mean, it would seem like there's never <laughs> anything not to worry about. Um, you know, no, I worry all the time about it. And I think about it all the time. And like I mentioned, I mean, it's one of those things where people's lives are at risk if I don't do my job well. And so it is constantly on my mind. I feel like I do work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And my daughter would probably tell you that I do. It's just the nature of the business that I'm in. And anyone who's sitting in my role probably feels the same way. So uh, going back to the TSA directives for a moment, 
among those mandates, it requires notifications of major breaches within 24 hours. Considering it can be difficult to even determine whether you've had a major breach at times. How do you drill to to do that kind of reporting? <laughs> it's a challenge, and reporting is probably the most talked about item out there. The SEC is now talking about requiring reporting. You know, you now have CISA reporting, you have TSA reporting, and it's it's all over the place. Everyone wants you to report everywhere, and. Um, it's a challenge because, you know, in 24 hours, sometimes you're still looking into it and how big is it? What is the scope? And we really report if we think we have something. So we are more on the overcautious side, I would say, of potentially reporting something. Thank you. Thank you for, for hanging in. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about zero trust and how it figures into your into your day to day. Yeah, zero trust. It's kind of like one of those new buzzwords. It's like the DevOps and everything else that comes up. For us, it's one of those things on, you know, we are just hardening ourselves, locking ourselves down as much as possible. And using the term, you know, we don't trust anyone. We have to know you. You have to be a, a reliable source for us to be able to engage with you technically. And I think if there is a common view of it, it might be a little easier, but our view of zero trust is completely different than everyone else's. And I, I think we feel as if in our definition, we're meeting zero trust, but somebody else might come in and say, oh, absolutely not, you're not. So I think it's depending on who you are and what your organization thinks about it. Um, it's, that's just, you know, I, I love it. I love the buzzwords that come out within our function. You know, it's always something. As we record this podcast, I'm somewhat fresh from returning from the RSA conference in San Francisco. There's a lot of mm -hmm. no surprise talk about zero trust. People seem to be somewhat fatigued with the term. A lot of them say, oh, it's, you know, it's just a buzzword, but then yeah. I think rightly so there are a lot of people who mentioned, well, it is a foundational principle. Yep. It's not a capability or a, a toolkit or anything like that. But obviously, trust is a word we hold near and dear. It's part of our podcast name here. Just when you think about trust itself in what you do and what your company does, your organization does, how does trust figure into what you need to be for your customers? We talk about trust constantly, even from the individual perspective. You know, we had a whole leadership session uh, about a year or so ago on just trust and that whole concept. But then you also have the trust from a technology perspective, too, on, you know, that whole zero trust. Who do you trust? Who you do not trust? And for us, as I mentioned, we are a very, I would say, narrow organization. We have states we function in. We have a handful of organizations that we do business with. We're not international. So our whole concept has been, we know who we do business with, and we're not going to do any interaction with anyone else. You know, geo-blocking is a big thing that we do here. And it's like, we don't need another country to even communicate with us because we're not there. Um, you know, we get the complaints a lot from our customers saying, oh, I was in France trying to pay my bill and I couldn't connect to you. And we're like, yeah, you couldn't, you know, that's... <laughs> Part of what we do. Uh, so you do get the hate mail on it. But for us, it's really worked out. <laughs> it's really, I would say, helped narrow us down to this is the scope of our business. And if you want to engage with an iSource from a technology perspective, then we have to build that trust with you. And we have to understand who you are, what you do. Um, anytime someone wants to connect to us, we go through a very detailed review of that organization. What are their cyber procedures? You know, what 
type of connection do they want? How can we monitor that? What different gates can we have along the way to make sure that there's nothing going wrong? And we want to trust, but it's that whole trust with verify as well. We'll let you in, but we're going to make sure that you're doing the things right. And that's part of who we are. It's all about safety and we're just cautious. You sort of touched upon it a moment ago, third parties. When it comes to handling and managing third parties, what kind of considerations do you keep in mind? Um, We keep an open mind, but as I said, we're extremely cautious. Any third party that wants to do business with NISource from a technology perspective goes through a very detailed third party assessment. We have actually outsourced part of that to an organization that provides us with report after report on a company. Um, I think our questionnaire that goes out to them is 250 some questions that we ask them about their organization. We risk rank all of our vendors. Are you a critical high, medium or low vendor? And that kind of tells us how often we wanna keep track of you and what we're doing to manage your account. There have been companies that we've turned down and said, no, thank you. Um, We just don't feel as if they are secure enough for us to engage with them. We don't feel as if they have the right business practices in place. And so we have turned down companies and said, and you know, it's it's hard on our business side of the folks because they're like, wait a second, we want to use them. And here I am saying, no, but you got to find somebody else. And so there's a lot of, I would say, hard conversations there. But in the end, everyone realizes it's the right thing for the organization. Great. Thank you. And then as far as the workforce itself goes, what kind of challenges are, are you experiencing there right now? We are all short-staffed. We're all facing challenges. Yeah, of Um, course. It's fantastic that most people can work remote now. We've been able to expand um, and look outside of just our headquarters footprint for people. We can go to other states now and say, okay, you can work for us remotely. But the market is so difficult right now to find those people. Everyone is just after them. I told someone this morning, I said, you know, somebody's going out, somebody's coming in and it's truly coming down to a financial aspect. I have folks here that are telling me, hey, you know, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. And here's what, you know, a normal person makes in Columbus in this role, but they're now working for a company out of Silicon Valley in California. And they're paying them what, you know, we pay our directors here. And it's like, how do I compete with that? Um, So it has been very difficult for us to compete in the market. Um, Because you are competing against those large companies that pay very differently than we do. Um, But we just bring in the best people that we can. And we're short staffed like everyone else and have open roles. Um, And we just we fill them when we can. Uh, We don't fill them just with people to sit in the seats. We want to make sure that we have the right individual in place. And so sometimes it takes us a little longer than to fill them those than others. Yeah, obviously, it's an enormous challenge throughout cybersecurity. Do you have any idea where it's all headed in the next five years? How is this going to work itself out? I think the positive is that there's more and more institutions, colleges and universities that are starting to teach about cyber. And so more people are getting into the field. I hear that a lot. But I think it's just, you know, they're not coming out as fast as we want all of them. And, you know, I I talked to a group uh, not too long ago from a university here, and they want the big jobs. They want the Facebooks and the Googles and, you know, those kind of roles. And here I am sitting in a utility, which is not sexy at all. And they're like, nope, I'm going to go work for Google out in California, or I'm going to sit in Columbus, Ohio and work for Google. And uh, it's really hard to bring in that new talent. There's not much excitement about my industry. That's been a challenge as well. 
Right. And particularly now, because in, you know, many instances, it, it obviously doesn't even really matter where you're, where you're sitting. You can, you can be wherever. Um, is by any chance the nice horse cafeteria a, a, a draw? Because <laughs> if so, I'll give you the opportunity to pitch it. <laughs> well, it, it used to be, um, you know, our office is still pretty empty. So, um, you know, it's not open right now, but we do have across the street, you know, a Chipotle and a a Boston's Tim Horton. So we've got good food around and you always have good food with Uber Eats now, but, um, you know, our, our office isn't as busy as it used to be. I come in, I'm not a work at home kind of person, but not everyone's there yet. Uh, Two more quick ones. And then I'll let you, uh, have the last word. Should we have missed anything here, but going back to something a little bit heavier uh, as a result of the war in Ukraine, how does higher natural gas costs figure into what you're doing from a security purview, if at all? Gas prices definitely are higher. And I think for a company like Nysource, you know, we don't produce the gas. We actually buy it ourselves and then pass it on to our customers. Our money is actually made by the rates that people pay. And those are rate cases that go to each state. Um, we don't just make them up and send them out. The states actually approve how much we're going to charge our customers for their gas. And so it's a fine line because now we're paying more for it, but yet we can at this point in time pass that on to our customers because we have to put that through to the States and get it approved. And um, I would say that other companies are probably, you know, feeling the same pressure we are, but it's, it's like a year long process to go through that. So we are actually kind of starting that in a couple of States talking about here's the investments we've had to make here's what we pay now, here's what we feel like our rates should be. And in those rate cases, we put in technology. That's the capital expenditures we have. And cyber is finally starting to get in there because we are making such large investments in it. And the states are finally starting to understand that, especially this past year with you know all the new work from TSA and everything. They're understanding, okay, this company had to invest $10 million, for example, in, in cyber. And so now we're being able to say, okay, well, let's recruit, recoup some of that from our customers. And so I think as the gas prices increase, we'll continue to go to the states and ask for some relief, but that takes a while to get in effect. So I think for now, we'll just be kind of dealing with it for a, a period of time. That's the thing that I think people need to understand is if you're getting an increase in your gas rates right now, if you're in a different state, it's probably due to a rate case that's been in the works for probably a year to two years. Um, so, you know, that's not even what's affecting going out to the customers at this point. My last question for you before I'll open it to whatever is, of course, the question everybody loves, what keeps you up at night? I sleep pretty well. So, I mean, nothing keeps me up a lot. Uh, but I, I will <laughs> say I, I share with people all the time that it's the people. The people is what keeps me up. It's not a piece of technology. It's not what's going on in the world. It's the people. And am I doing the right thing to educate them and to make sure that they are aware of what's going on and what they need to focus on when they're reading their email, for example? Because um, it takes one person sitting anywhere in our organization that clicks and you can bring down our entire company in, in minutes. You know, you saw that with Colonial. That is my thing that keeps me up is the education and the people, making sure that they are aware and they are being as cautious as the rest of us. How do you do that? We have a pretty robust security awareness program. Um, 
we have an individual that's dedicated to it, does a lot of messaging. We have our own blog out there on our internet and she blogs about everything cyber related, what's going on. Um, but we also do fishing exercises monthly and they get harder and harder all the time. And I report that up to our board actually on a quarterly basis. I spent 20 minutes in May talking about fishing with them and how do we do it better? How do we get people more aware? And I have been on probably more staff meeting agendas in the past two months than I have in the past four years, just because it is a hot topic and that getting people to understand the severity of it. So I actually had someone tell me that uh, last week. They said, I never realized that somebody clicking on a phishing email could lock up the entire company. And, you know, I think until people understand that, it's something that we're going to continue to do. Carla, this has been really, really interesting. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time here. Is there anything that you're you know, itching to tell the large trust issues audience? I just want people to understand that um, our job is really hard and we're not doing it to be painful to everyone. Like I said, everyone comes and I get rolling on the eyes all the time. Well, cyber told me no. And it's not because we don't want you to do something. It's because we're trying to protect you. We're trying to protect you, our customers, our organization. And I don't think that a lot of people really understand that people in my position and my team's position, it's stressful. It's hard. It's the most difficult job I think I could ever imagine. But it's so rewarding when you think, okay, you know, all this stuff is going on in the world and knock on wood so far, we've done a good job. And that's what makes me happy. And it makes me happy that I have a fantastic team that I, I don't know what I do without them. They keep me on my toes and they just keep evolving what we're doing. And it's a very rewarding career and more people should get into it. But if you're not an adrenaline junkie and you're not ready to go and excited about, you know, being on call 24 hours a day, it's probably not the profession for you. So um, I, I thank you for having me on. Thank you very much. And really, this has been terrific. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Look forward to keeping in touch and talking to you again soon, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Best of luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but, you know, it's up to you or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 